David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story, is presented by Sam Adams. You know what? I went to the Samuel Adams factory, and I had the opportunity to taste so many different flavors that they have that really, really, really made me fall in love with their beer because now they came out with some light, which is my favorite flavor. And, uh, man, I'm, you know, it's time to Samuel Adams. <laughs> Sam Adams, fill your glass. Last time on David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story. Boone hits it to deep left. That might send the Yankees to the World Series. Boone, a hero in game seven. If we get through the Yankees that year, we win the World Series. That moment, fuck everything up. I learned one thing that day. And it was that if I want to have a long career... I gotta be on top of it. Because I used to play the game by instinct. I mean, this guy is the greatest postseason player ever. Five to, one and to hear them down. talk about what David Ortiz meant. The American to them. dream is so important for all Dominicans. David Ortiz you can't find a more authentic person. Because he did have a chip on his shoulder. David Ortiz, the most important Red Sox of all I was here watching the whole thing. I saw a Black Hawk just flying by my house. It was house. amazing. You don't, see, you don't see that every day. This is our fucking city. And nobody got a big day of freedom. My name is David Ortiz. They call me Big Poppy. This is my story. The Boston Red Sox 2003 season ended in the most devastating fashion imaginable. By the Yankees. When Aaron fucking Boone belted a walk-off homer in the bottom of the 11th inning of Game 7 in the American League Championship Series. Just like that, yet another horrible chapter in Red Sox history had been written. The next morning, October 17, 2003, the New York Daily News headline screamed, the curse of the Boonbino. And the very first sentence of the article said, quote, Who knew the many and varied cruelties the curse actually contained? Now the Bambino might be piling on. Well, New York was definitely piling on. But as a Sox fan or player, how could you not believe that something completely out of our control was conspiring against us? Here's pitcher Tim Wakefield. He gave up the homer to Aaron Boone, and afterwards, he wasn't sure how long the fog would linger. Getting back to Boston and leaving immediately to go back to our home in Florida for the offseason, I really didn't know where I stood with the fans. I didn't read any papers. I, you know, obviously, the online thing wasn't too big at that point, but uh, it wasn't until I got invited back for the baseball writers' dinner in January and I got a standing ovation when they announced my name. I knew I had been forgiven. And it was it took a, a long time, you know, October, November, December, January, before I really realized that everything was okay. Outfielder Johnny Damon. 2003 was tough to take. And it was like, okay, we were in misery during the offseason. But you know what? You stir it again. Certainly there were other mistakes made in Game 7 of the 2003 ALCS. 
like keeping Pedro Martinez on the mound in the eighth inning when the Sox were ahead 5-2. And that was a mistake that manager Grady Little had paid for with his job. Terry Tito Francona had come on as the new manager, and GM Theo Epstein, among a laundry list of other transactions, added star pitcher Kurt Schilling to the rotation. But by the midpoint of the 2004 season, the Red Sox weren't winning the way they'd expected to. In fact, heading into a late July series against the Yankees, the Sox were eight and a half games behind their arch rivals in the AL East. If they were going to salvage their season, this was the time. Pressure didn't bother them at all. That's what made it so fascinating. Peter Gammons has been writing and talking about baseball since most of us can remember. He's one of the most respected voices in baseball history, and he's a Boston native. And just like so many of us, Gammons can point to a pivotal moment in that season, July 24th, 2004. They had that game when Bronson Arroyo hit Alex Rodriguez, who was, of course, a touchy subject to Boston anyway. That offseason, the Sox had had a blockbuster deal in place to get baseball's best and highest paid player, Alex Rodriguez. But the players' union rejected it because it required A-Rod's existing contract to be restructured. Instead, the Yankees grabbed him. Guys that were supposed to be traded for A-Rod were still playing in Boston, and it added a lot more fuel to the rivalry. Now, as Bronson has always reminded me, Alex was so smart and so prepared that he knew that Bronson had never doubled up with his fastball on consecutive pitches inside to him. Anytime he ever faced him, going back to high school, because they faced each other in high school. Well, he missed with the first pitch inside, decided, you know what, I got to get in there. So he went back and it hit Alex and Alex started out and then of course Jason Veritek punched Alex in the face with his glove. Veritek's walking with A-Rod having words. Veritek and A-Rod are having words, and now they're in a fight. Here's Alex Rodriguez and Jason Veritek in a fight, and both pitches empty. They're along the foul line. And then Bill Miller hits the home run in the ninth inning off Mariano Rivera for this incredibly improbable comeback. Driven in the air to deep right field. Back is Sheffield. The Red Sox win it. You know, we got in a big ball with, with the Yankees at home. And I think that was a turning point for us to say, we're sick and tired of being the little brother of the American League East. You know, New York had, you know, controlled the American League East for years and years and years. And um, it was nice to finally say, okay, you know, enough's enough. You're not going to do this to us anymore. And I think David Ortiz had a big thing to do with that. You know, he started to really turn into a superstar player in 03 and then 04. The comeback against the Yankees was a spark but really good teams are always looking for ways to become great. Theo Epstein, always tinkering, felt like moves needed to be made. And just one week after the fight on July 31st, they were made in a big way. The Sox acquired outfielder Dave Roberts, and then, as part of a four-team blockbuster, they parted ways with their star shortstop, Nomar Garciaparra, in exchange for Orlando Cabrera from the Expos. And they also got Big Poppy's old friend, Doug Mankiewicz, from Minnesota in the deal, too. Doug quickly realized the type of team he was joining. So the second I walked in, I'll never forget, I walked in and Pedro's on my chair with no clothes on, going, Dougie, come give me a hug. Because I, here I am leaving, like, the only team I've ever known, all the guys I've grew up with, and I'm walking into, like, this 
circus, but I was like, man, like this really feels comfortable. They had 10 o'clock breakfast on the road. And whether you were coming in for the night before or you actually went to bed and woke up, you know, there were 15, 20 guys strong at breakfast every morning. I'm like, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen anywhere. And it happens all the time with those guys. And you just, I realized like, man, this team's different. Like this team just, you can say whatever you want to in the clubhouse. No one gets upset. They're constantly bickering and constantly back and forth. The banter was huge. And they welcomed me with open arms. Because, I mean, they all knew that David and I were close. So, like, if David vouches for you, you always joke around any friend of David's family of mine. So that's kind of how it rolled. And by day three, it was like I was there for three years. When they had the fight with the Yankees, the Sox were nine and a half games back. After the trades a few days later, the team began to roll. From mid-August through early September, they won 22 of 25 games and the team's chemistry took on a life of its own. They were the loosest group in the major leagues, and that was clear to anybody that watched them. It just looked like nothing could stop them from having fun. They began calling themselves the idiots. That was real, the idiot thing, because we sometimes look like a whole bunch of knuckleheads out there just having fun, and at the end of the day, you were act stupid, but you would get things done like any NASA guy, any any smart guy that you would expect to get things done. So, because the thing is, man, that when you're dealing with so many mans in one room, it's hard. It's hard to keep everybody on the same page. You got 25 different mentality adult that it's hard. That's why you see organization having issues with players because it's hard to keep everybody lined up in the same position. And uh, especially when you got crazy guys around. And that's how we start looking like idiots, but guys that really care for each other. Guys would make reporters feel uncomfortable on purpose, doing all kinds of stupid shit. Guys doing push-up naked in the clubhouse or, or Johnny Damon doing pull-up, like, that was nothing. I'm not that guy who kisses and tells. I mean, Kevin Millar would be the perfect guy. Johnny Damon. One of the great leadoff hitters of the game of baseball, yet was butt naked before the game started, probably 11 minutes before first pitch. And you'd look over and, you know, me personally or David or Jason Veritek, I mean, you're dressed by 6 o'clock an hour before the game. I mean, I'm sitting in my locker with my head down a nervous wreck trying to think about, you know, which slider I'm going to roll over to and ground out to shortstop. And, and I got Johnny Damon over there to my left. He's butt naked leading off. And sure enough, you know, it's 6.48, and I'm like, bro, we got a ball game here in about, you know, 12 minutes, and you look up 13 minutes later, he'd already let off the game. I'm like, you can't make this up. You would think our leadoff hitter was sitting over there running sprints. Johnny was a leading idiot of the team, you know, uh, long-haired, looking like Jesus. But we had such a unique group of personalities, you know, from Manny Ramirez, to one of the greatest right-hand hitters in this game I've ever seen, uh, late inning to the help that he gave David Ortiz and made him into the greatest DH, in my opinion, that this game's ever seen. You know, all the way through your hard work and Billy Miller, who won the batting title in 2003, who was non-tendered by the Cubs with a broken kneecap. So you go all the way around, Jason Veritek, you know, was the only guy wearing a Johnny Unias flat top, you know, always mess around with his haircut. 
He had the old school flat top, and uh, you know he's the captain of the big quad, the number thirty three. Trot Nixon in right field, you know, just an old school football mentality. So our team was that. We were just some crazy group of guys that love playing baseball. And it was just a great matchup against the New York Yankees, who were tall. They were rich. They were good looking. You know, and even Poppy, he thinks he's good looking. He's not good looking, but he's handsome. And he'd always go with that money sign in his hands. You know, I'm not good looking, but I'm handsome. And, you know, the money makes you handsome. And that's what the New York Yankees were to us. They were good-looking and rich and handsome and everything and good. And we were just these kind of like a bunch of idiots just kind of grinding it away. And so it's it's what kind of made the rivalry great. There was so much chaos every day when we walked in that place that, like, I'll describe this. Like, walking into my locker, go from there, go to the house of the trainers. As you're walking through and those little tiny whirlpools are in there, and they're like barely one guy can fit in there. And you walk in, and Pedro, Kevin, and Manny are all in the same hot tub. And you just walk in like, Petey, Kev, Manny, what's up? Like, you just walk by like, like it was nothing, like it was just normal. Like, you're splashing water on each other, and there's a rubber ducky in it. And, like, you just walk by and you just say hi to them like it's nothing, like, like it was normal. Like, you're just like, hey, guys, what's up? And you just kept walking and go grab your Advil, and you walk back out. Like, it's nothing seemed to, like, phase you. Because, like, when you thought it couldn't get any weirder, come back to work the next day and that's what made it fun though because i couldn't wait i'd wake up and be like i gotta go to the field at noon because like if you walked in at two o'clock you wouldn't have anything in your locker your pants would be gone like the whole joke of the whole team was i'm gonna wear gabe kapler's socks tonight and manny's pants and david's undershirt it just happened i can't find my pants like well shit i don't know where then you look around and, like i look and someone's got my shorty pants i'm like never mind i'll just grab somebody else's like, nothing was sacred. Like, everything, like, you look in your locker, one day you had 50 things, and the next day you had three. Because if you got two hits the night before, someone was wearing your stuff. So it was like, it just was, it, it happened every day. Comedian Bill Burr. It was contagious. Their vibe was contagious. And when Millar said that, you know, we're just a bunch of idiots going out there, to describe them like that, it took all the weight of the pressure of the whole stupid, like, all of that crap of like, oh, the curse and and, and uh, Bambino and this thing and that thing and all of that. It was all bullshit. Every year it was a brand new slate, unless you think about that. So they kind of, they just let all the pressure out and they just went out and had a good time. And as a fan, it was contagious. And I remember I was living in New York and, you know, their sports media jumped all over. Yeah, even they, they're calling themselves idiots and they didn't get it. They didn't get it because that was around the time, too, when the Yankees started doing this BS where like everybody had to be clean-shaven and they tried to act like they were always like that. It's like if you look at the, the Yankees in 77 and 78, it looks like a, a gangbang where the chick didn't show up in like a porno. Everybody's got mutton chops and these giant mustaches and afros poking out of their hats. Get out of here. And that was one of the saddest things ever. You know, we got Johnny Damon as a free agent, so I never, you know— you sign a free agent, that's like falling in love with the stripper. You know what I mean? It's a stupid thing to do. Just enjoy him when they're there. I hope you win a title. Watching him go down there and making them get a haircut and he shaved his... He looked like a little boy going to get his picture taken first day of school. Like I actually had to turn away. And I'm kind of glad he did it because he didn't even look like the same guy anymore. So I was kind of fine with it. I was like, yeah. we. I just always looked at it like, well, we had the cool Johnny Damon. We had the Johnny Damon that looked like he was in the Allman Brothers. You know? You had the one who looked like a Cub Scout. The chemistry, I mean, I don't, like, you can't, 
pinpoint what chemistry is really about until you're part of something that's so magical. And that's our team. The chemistry in our, in our club was second to none. We cared about each other. I think that's what made us really good. I mean, everybody cared about each other and wanted to pick the other person up. I mean, you couldn't find a team that we were all brothers and we spend more time together than our own families and we understood what was at stake. I believe our team really didn't think about the past. David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story. David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story is presented by Sam Adams. When it's time to spend time with somebody else, your family or friends, Sam Adams is stuck in my bar at my house. Oh man, barbecue, I mean, hanging out with the family, watch games. I know New England most of the time is cold, but whenever it get hot, you know, it's time to Sam Adams. <laughs> Sam Adams, fill your glass. The Sox hot finish got them the AL wild card for a second straight year and set up an American League divisional playoff matchup with the Anaheim Angels. Boston took the first two games in the best of five series, giving them a chance to close it out in game three. And by that point, Big Poppy was making people believe. Ortiz was the giant figure. I remember in 2004, in the third game of the three-game series with Anaheim, they had a left-handed pitcher named Jared Washburn came in in relief in a tie game in the extra innings. And I was working for ESPN at the time and had to go down to the field when the game was over. And I got up as Ortiz was coming up to the plate. I had season tickets at the time in the eighth row in back of home play. I got up to walk around so I could get down onto the field. And a couple of people said, what are you doing? I said, there is no way that Jared Washburn has enough to pitch to David Ortiz in this moment. And here's David Ortiz, you see that number today with three hits. This could be four. It's over. The Red Sox win, and they're moving on up. Sure enough, third pitch, he hit it in the screen, three-run homer. Red Sox win, go on to the, to the series with the Yankees. So the stage was set. Yet another epic series with the Yankees in the 2004 American League Championship Series. For those involved, there was a sense that this season would be different for the Red Sox. After losing in the most brutal way possible, a Game 7 walk-off homer just one season earlier, the matchup felt like the World Series. And Red Sox Nation, especially David Ortiz's father, Leo, was ready to put the curse to the test. I came for the series with a number of friends. And we went to Cooperstown. And you know, when you go into Cooperstown, the first thing you see is the Bambino statue there. And you know what? I talked to that statue. I took a picture with it. And I talked to this man. I said, this is the year, Bambino, that this curse is going to be broken. And I grabbed him and the bat. And I said, Bambino, pass me this bat. There is a player named David Ortiz of the Rexas who came willing to break the curse of the Bambino. Here's Don Arcillo, former Red Sox broadcaster. 
Well, I think that anytime you're in a situation with the Yankees, regular season or otherwise, it is very different. It's different from any game or series you're going to have during the course of the year. The rivalry had returned that year. Early on in the year, of course, the altercation with A-Rod and uh, Jason Baratek and, uh, at Fenway Park was something that kind of notched it up a bit. Uh, but the regular season games are intense. I mean, they are big deals and uh, lead to four-hour-plus games, which are just uh, epic battles. And um, to have a a postseason where the two line up against each other brings it to another level. And I can remember that series beginning and realizing how equally matched the two teams really were. But right away, it didn't look like a fair fight at all. The Yankees jumped all over the Red Sox so quickly, Boston didn't even know what hit them. New York took a three games to none lead, winning the third game by a score of 19 to 8. The series looked like it was over before it even began. No team had ever come back from a 3-0 deficit in the postseason. Legendary writer Bob Ryan of the Boston Globe captured the sense of dread that Sox fans had carried for so long when he wrote, quote, They are down 3-0 after last night's 19-8 route. That is an official death sentence. Soon it will be over, and we will spend another dreary winter lamenting this and lamenting that. And also in the Globe, Dan Shaughnessy noted, quote, 19 to 8. Why not 19-18? Not only are we getting our asses kicked, we're getting our asses kicked by the Yankees. That's like your biggest nemesis in middle school and high school walking away with your wife and your kids. It's like you can't, it doesn't get any worse. And, and we felt that, but the same token was like, we haven't really played well. And honestly, the best thing that happened to us was losing 19-8 to because, like, the whole time during the game, we didn't like going through it, but it was like what people don't realize is, like, what most fans don't realize is, like, that game was easier to flush than game one was. Like, game one, we're down 7 nothing, and David hits the ball off the top of the fence that would have tied it in, like, the seventh or eighth, and we were demoralized. Losing a one-run game, is a hell of a lot harder to flush than getting beat 19 to 8. It's like those games happen. And you didn't want it to happen then, but at the same token, you're like, we're on the bench going, I hope you score 30. Because eventually that shit wears out. I remember, like, after we lost game three, it was the first time I've ever seen us all really upset, like pissed. And it lasted for like 30 minutes. And then it was like, Johnny stands up and goes, just bring your luggage in tomorrow as a joke. Like, we all brought our luggage to go home. And I was like, we try to do this the right way. Like, go to bed early and get our rest. We have a big game tomorrow. And we're like, fuck it, man. We're all going out. But the reminders of the decades of pain for so many others were hard to miss. When it really hit me was when David and I were, were getting ready to go to his house. And I saw a group of like five or six men my dad's age. And... They were like hyperventilating, crying, like walking to their cars. And I was like, man, I wish I cared about something I had no control over like that. And on one hand, I was like, man, that's, that's dedication. And on the other hand, I'm like, man, that's, that's a little steep, isn't it? That's a little crazy, huh? I remember going to Dave, like, Dave, is that normal? That can't be healthy. And he's like, welcome to Boston. And I remember like David, I went to David's house. My mom, my dad, David's whole family, my wife. We drank El Presidente's to what seemed like 7 in the morning after game three. Here, I, here we are thinking, like, we got a game tomorrow night, and if we lose, we go home. And it was like, the hell with it. We try to do this the conventional way. We learned that we suck when we do it the conventional way. 
we're doing it our way. And we haven't done it in 86 years. You think it's going to be a conventional way? It's not. Here's teammate Kevin Millar. It's funny. It happened. We were we got crushed in game three, and uh, I was using the restroom that morning of game four, okay? And I'm reading the paper, and Dan Shaughnessy came out and said, we're a pack of frauds. And, and the fraud word hit me. And when I say that, the Yankees could be better than us, no problem. But to call us frauds, that wasn't right. And so when I got to the field that day, yeah, I believed everything I said. And I didn't know how we were going to win game four. I know Derek Lowe was starting. The matchup wasn't great. You know, they just peppered the green monster all night long. You know, my dad said something funny. Hopefully they had blisters in their hands because they all got three or four hits a night that past night. But I believed if we could win game four, anything could happen. Because we had Pedro game five. We had Schilling game six. And then game seven, that was the statement. Anything can happen, which once you get to that game, and that's the truth. I remember... Kevin Millar being the only guy screaming and expecting us to bounce back and beat the Yankees when we were three to zero. He came to the field so animated. He came to the field like a genius came to him, be like, it doesn't matter what you guys do, you guys are gonna whoop the Yankees' ass. I thought that he was crazy. Because the last game, game three, we got our asses beat up badly like it was fireworks going on at that field so in my mind i'm like we're not gonna be able to stop that offense they had a fucking unbelievable offense so that was the reason why i was like well three and all they scored like 18 runs we fucked and then all of a sudden you see this guy acting like somebody told him something that we don't know I walked in immediately yipping and yapping because it's a depressing time. You're down three games to none in a seven-game series. It's miserable. One game out, you're done. we got to win four straight against the mighty Yankees. So I rolled in, and I was just kind of yipping and yapping. Don't let us win tonight. And it all started with the Dan Shossi in an interview. When he walked in, I started yelling at him about his hair because, you know, he wrote the article, and he kind of came over to me like, what are you be so hard on me? And I said, you called us frauds. And then we got out there in the field for batting practice, and that's when the boomstick kind of caught our conversation on don't let us win tonight. And then, you know, if we win tonight, then we got Pedro Schilling and anything happened in game seven. Kevin Millar was hysterical. The Red Sox were stretching out of the field. And Millar got up from the stretch. He came over to me and yelled, Petey, let me tell you something. We're going to win tonight. And when we win, it's over. The Yankees have no chance. No chance. He said, because tomorrow night, we got Petey. Friday night, we got the big shill. By Friday night, well, we've come back. We're going to win. Manager Terry Francona pushed the same button as Millar. He just said, win today. And you're like, God, how many times have you heard that? You hear it every day. But it makes sense. Like, we're not trying to win four games. We're just trying to win today. Okay. Like, we've won games all year. We can win today. So we just need to win four one-game series. We can do that. What's one game? We've won one game all year. We can do that all. And, like, we just kept that, that motto, like, you know, like Kevin was right, you know, don't let us win today. The motto was don't let us win tonight. You know, once we got our backs against the wall, it was time. Okay, let's win tonight. Whatever it takes, let's win tonight and see where it goes from there. Inside that clubhouse, they believed. Outside and around the city, it was the same old story. Journalist Howard Bryant was there to cover game four. I couldn't give away. 
I had tickets to games four and five. Nobody in Boston that I knew wanted them because nobody wanted to be there for the funeral. And I gave my tickets away to my son's pediatrician. <laughs> my, my friends did not want these tickets after what happened last year, the year, you know, after what happened in 03, they didn't want them. Despite all of Millar's motivational work, by the bottom of the ninth inning, game four was looking like the end of the line for the Red Sox. They were down 4-3 and facing the greatest closer in the history of the game, Mariano Rivera. Rivera had always seemed especially unbeatable against the Sox, and it was hard to think that he was going to do anything but close the series out for the sweep, setting the Yankees up for another title that year. But Millar opened the ninth inning with a walk. And then, when Dave Roberts pinch ran, he stole second base by an inch. And then Bill Miller, the hero of that game back on July 24th, once again got a crucial hit, knocking the game-tying RBI single right up the middle. Not going to bunt, he swings and lines one up the middle in the center field, a base hit. Roberts hits third, here he comes. Bernie Williams' throw is cut off, and the game is tied! Rivera had blown the save, and the game was headed to extra innings. It stayed tied into the bottom of the 12th, when Manny Ramirez led off with a single off pitcher Paul Quantrill. And then, Big Poppy was at the plate. When I saw Paul Quantrill walking out of the bullpen, I went back to my moments against him before, and I was like, here come my front door fastball. And that's exactly what he gave me after a couple of pitches, because that pitch was nasty. That's a pitch that you give up on at the minute you see it because it's coming right at you. And then in the last second, start looking for the plate. But he did it to me on a few occasions. He had that, he had the cutter, and he was one or the other. Swing and a drive, deep to right, way back, and this ball is gone! Jump on his back, fellas, the Red Sox win. David Ortiz, another. Walk-off home run, this one in the 12th, and the Red Sox beat the Yankees, live to play again. There's a mystery behind those moments that basically helped me out to come through. It was no noise, it was no heartbeat, it was no breathing, it was no thinking. And let me tell you, if your heart beat, because I had those moments where my heart beat faster and I never came through when it happens. Now, when you like just zoom the moment and you're not paying attention to anything else, that was when it was easier for me to get things done the way people expect me to do it. But anything else, any distraction that you have going on at the moment at the time, it'll cost you. That's the way I feel. I don't know how any other I to feel like, but that's how I feel. I was cold. Look, I was a guy that people always doubt me about the things that I was capable of. Why? I don't know. David Ortiz, his fourth career walk-off home run. It feel great. Once I hit the ball, I know we have another game. We have another game. That was the answer. That We, we wasn't done yet. That stadium went crazy bananas it was like we won <laughs>
I'm standing on the bullpen mound and he hits one into the visiting bullpen and it's just like my hands went up in the air and I ran off the bullpen as fast as I could to, to mob him at home plate. It was it was amazing. You know, David Ortiz when we first got him. The cool thing, I mean, he earned the nickname Big Poppy. That was a very emotional moment for me. I would sit down, I would jump up, I would refill my glass of wine constantly because these were emotions that I just couldn't contain. David's just the most remarkable person. I know people see it through baseball, but I've been able to see it in our personal life too. Like he doesn't back down from critical moments. It's something that's always been in him, you know, whether there's a, a family crisis where, you know, I lost my mother or father or, you know, someone deeply, he just steps up. Like he's always there, you know, whether the kids are sick And I don't know, he has something about him that handles the toughest situations. I don't want to say perfectly, but I guess just the fact that he is willing to always step up and, and deal with them is how he gets such a good outcome. It's funny, it kills me when people are like, oh, David became this clutch maniac in Boston. I'm like, no, he didn't. He did this for us in 2002, but he broke his wrist the first half and he missed a lot of time. And all of a sudden, when we went from up five games to up 15 games, it was all because of David. I mean, if you look at the 2002 numbers, he did that in four months. And it was crazy. And he, every clutch hit we needed, he got. And every clutch homer we needed, he got. He had that. You don't just create that gene. That gene's in you from birth. Like Derek Jeter just to become a clutch October player through experience. He had that gene in him, that chromosome that no one else has. And David had it from the word jump. I think that if there was a curse, the curse was a lack of confidence. He it was a lack of belief. David Ortiz walked into that clubhouse and was like, we don't bow our heads to anybody. That, to me, is what, you know, it's, it's and that the organization went out and spent, that the organization recognized under John Henry and Tom Warner and Larry Lucchino and David Ortiz and Manny Ramirez and Johnny Damon and Pedro, that they recognized, we're not afraid of anybody. And David embodied that because he had that thing. That's star power. He's Reggie in a lot of ways. I remember talking to Reggie Jackson about this one day when we were talking about, you know, Alex Rodriguez's struggles in the postseason. And I remember asking Reggie, I said, Reggie, how come no free agent has been able to conquer New York the way you could? And he said, because, and he told me the difference between he and Alex. And he said, when Alex is in that batter's box, he's thinking, what are they going to say about me if I fail? What are they going to say about me if I strike out? What are they going to say about me if I don't get this done? He says, when I got into that batter's box, I said, just click it once. If you click it once, right here, right now, they'll remember you for the rest of your life. And I think that's what David was for Boston. Just 16 hours after Big Poppy went yard to win game four, game five began at 5.11 p.m. Five hours and 49 minutes later, in what would break the record for the longest postseason game ever, it was the bottom of the 14th inning with two outs. The score was knotted at 4-4, and once again, David Ortiz had the bat in his hands. I was literally like pacing on deck, going back and forth, going, come on, David, come on, David, don't leave this up to me. I had good numbers against Loiza going, okay, I can erase a really shitty offensive year with one swing. I, give me the shot, give me the shot. David fouled off 85 pitches of that bat. I'm, I'm talking to David's mom, like, come on, come on, mama. 
We need you one time. One more time. One more time. You did it last night. Come on. You did it one, one more night. Come on. You got it. You got it. You can do this. Help him out. He's got it. He's got it. It was the most gut-wrenching at bat I never got in the big leagues. Because I was standing five feet from David, like, just pacing, going, you want to be the guy in that spot? And, like, the matchup was right for me because I'm going, I do well against the Wiza. I think I must have walked 500 steps. And I usually don't move on deck. But I was going back and forth, pumping myself up, going, come on, David, don't leave it to me. I got this. I've waited my whole life for this. This is perfect. This is, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Come on, David. Stop filing it off because there's no way he's going to pitch to him. And then Esteban Loiza threw his 10th pitch of the at-bat to Big Poppy. And a little flare. Center field. The ball falls for a hit. Here comes Johnny Damon with the winning run. And David Ortiz has done it again. The Red Sox will play game six tomorrow night in New York. They mob David Ortiz, who had one of the best at-bats of the season. He'd done it again. David Ortiz walk-off base hit to win the game. He'd now hit two walk-offs in two straight games in less than 24 hours. I gave Joe Torre so much crap after that when I played from the Yankees. I go, what were you thinking? Like, why would you pitch to him and not me? How many times do you let this guy kill you before you make somebody else beat you? Teammate Kevin Millar. So basically, the last two games, Poppy puts us on our backs and says, boys, come with me. I'm taking you to the promised land. That gets us to game six in your stadium. But that's the stuff that David Ortiz, we talk about, I mean, a lot of guys got great numbers. You look at a, at a season, there's always a guy with 30 home runs and 100 RBIs and had a great season. Congratulations. When I tell you there wasn't a guy in this game, in this planet, that it seemed like out of his 120 RBIs, 117 of them were great. We needed them. There was rarely that fourth inning blowout three-run home run. It was the seventh inning or later, it seemed like he had the ability to put people on their back. It was almost like this good chip on his shoulder. You know, we always talk about, oh, this kid's got a chip on his shoulder. But he had the ability to sit on pitches. He had the ability to sit in a location and not leave that location. If I'm the Yankees, I'm not letting that guy beat me. And he did it over and over again, which means that that's what makes the great ones great. And for Menkevich, who'd been there at Ortiz's darkest moment, the connection to the woman he lost was clearly present in every moment of joy. I must have said to him 500 times, like, she's so freaking proud of you right now. Like, I must have said that 500 times. Like, I'm getting goosebumps right now. It's like, every time he looks up, I know his, his notorious double finger. That's for her. You know, that stuff doesn't go away. I felt like she was partly my mom, too, because of the, all the time we spent and knowing David like I do and knowing the talks that we've had about her and when she passed and special stuff like that. I'm like, you have her on your shoulder, Bubba. That's the only way you can explain what you're doing. You're good, but you're not that good. Like, mama's got a lot to do with this, man. (laughs) Like, you're doing amazing things, and she sees you, and she's so damn proud of you right now. One thing about David was that he was able to slow his clock down in pressure situations. He never got excited. He got mad at times, got mad at umpires, got mad at pitchers, you know, whatever. But that's the competitiveness of it. But... He slowed down the moment and knew what the situation was. I mean, it, he thinks a lot, and uh, he really understood pitchers. He did a lot of video work, but it was also innate. Jason Varitek always talked about the difference with Kurt Schilling and Pedro Martinez being Kurt Schilling studied everything. I mean, he was like preparing for a start was like preparing for the law boards. Pedro Martinez saw things that nobody else saw. And David had the combination 
of being extremely prepared and having the great vision to see things in pitchers and what they've tried to do to him. Hall of Fame Red Sox great Jim Rice. David didn't see the pressure. You know what David saw? Fun. He wanted to have fun. And that was it. Here is a guy that played for the Minnesota Twins. The Minnesota Twins released him. Pedro Martinez helped him get him back into Boston, and all of a sudden he's doing these things. He would have been out of baseball. It's fun. When someone to give you a job like that, and then all of a sudden the, the city just make you a different person and a better person and a leader, you can't ask for anything better than that. Being clutch is special because, put it this way, I sit down to watch the game right now, and there's very few guys that you watch coming into a moment that you're expecting to get things done, and they still fail. Now, when you are watching the game that you expect somebody to get things done, and that person get it done over and over and over and over, it's separated from everybody else. And I guess that's what my career was all about. I was always looking for those moments because my focus, my adrenaline, my, my everything on me was just like right there. Ortiz is doing this, not just helping the Red Sox win, but he's doing it against the Yankees. He's got the Yankees afraid of him. The Yankees aren't afraid of anybody. And all of a sudden in Boston, you're starting to look and you are seeing something change. You're seeing a guy who's doing something that we'd never seen before. And even more importantly than that, you're seeing a guy where he looked the Yankees right in the eye. He looked George Steinbrenner right in the eye and Reggie Jackson and Brian Cashman and the history and Jeter and all of them. And he did it in such a way where maybe it was just that moment in time because of the way they lost in 2003. But he looked at them and looked back in his own dugout and said, hey, fellas, we got this. Boston has never had that. Not Ted Williams, not Jim Rice, not Roger Clemens. None of them have been able to look their Yankees in the eye and say, you guys are going to be the ones to blink. He did that. And that, to me, is the Ortiz effect. When I think about David, I think about all the different things that he did. But more than anything else, I think about pride. I think about the thing that he gave that city that the city never had. Not in baseball. And it really hasn't gone away. Before we had hammer and nail, but now we got a true rivalry. Now we got two hammers. And when I think about those years, and I call them the superpowers, that was back when everybody wanted to be part of Boston, New York, whether it was A-Rod or whether it was Contreras or Schilling, and they were all going after the same players and Randy Johnson and everything. It was such a crazy time. When I think about those years, the most important thing of all that was the fact that Ortiz had given them a pride and a confidence that I'd never seen before. It's really something. We had never scared the hell out of Yankee fans Ever, with any team, ever. And that one, they were loose and they were light and they weren't carrying it the way I felt all those other teams were. And then to watch, you know, Poppy throughout that series when he came up, just the way he would spit in his hand and then clap his hands together, it was just like, he looked like, you know, remember the, the, the scariest dad on the block, you know? Like the nerdy accountant guy told you to knock it off, you know, his dad, you didn't give a shit. But when that guy came walking out, everybody scattered. He had that vibe. And anytime you needed a play, he had that Derek Jeter thing. Like when Derek Jeter came to the plate, it wasn't, is this guy going to kill us? It's like, how is he going to do it? Double to the gap. Is he going to pull one down the line for a home run? 
You know he's getting on base. You know he's driving runs in. And we finally had a guy that it was like he went up there and it made Yankee fans look the other way. I mean, the guy's nickname was literally the Yankee Killer. And in the hundred-something years of the Red Sox, there was nobody ever even remotely considered a Yankee killer. We never even, like, annoyed them (laughs) until he came along. And he was just loose, happy, positive. He was a force of nature. And just combined with the whole chemistry of that team, I was like, these guys are loose. These guys don't care. These guys are not feeling the weight of this thing. David Ortiz, The Big Poppy Story. It's important to protect your home with a home security system. But how many home security companies are actually thinking, how can we protect your home and your privacy? That's why I love SimpliSafe. SimpliSafe has a camera that you can control from your phone, but they want to protect your home and your privacy. So they came up with this brilliant idea, a privacy shutter for their camera. SimpliSafe wanted you to be able to hear the shutter click so you know it's close. And they needed to work for the entire lifespan of the system. I'm a person that I travel a lot. I take my family on vacation a lot. So I definitely need something to give me security when I'm not at home. And not only when I'm not at home, when I'm at home and I wanna be peaceful, I wanna be sleeping safe without worry about anything. So Simple Safe give me the opportunity to be safe for sure. Check out Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com slash puppy. That's simplysafe.com slash puppy. To learn more about Simply Safe today, simplysafe.com slash puppy. We were in Yankee Stadium game six. When the Yankees are taking batting practice, they got all the good hip hop, fun music, for fired up. Fans are coming in, you know, it's just, it's awesome. And then as the visiting team takes BP, they put on this Yankeeography, which is this real somber Yogi Berra and Derek Jeter and Bernie Williams, and there's no music, and it's just voices. It's like an interview. So, you know, they lure the visiting team to sleep, and it's just whatever it is. You know, that's their advantage, and it's a great idea until, you know, we're not going to fall for the banana in the tailpipe. And so here we are in the playoffs. Game six, it's a little misty out and raining, and we don't take batting practice on the field. And so I'm walking down the clubhouse, and I told Tito, I said, hey, man, we're not taking BP on the field, which Terry Francona was our manager at the time. And I said, uh, he's like, what? What? What are you talking about? I was like, man, we're not falling for the Yankeeography. He's like, yeah, whatever you want. Let's hit the cages. That's fine. I mean, you know, but it's like Super Bowl now. The Sox-Yankees. Game six. There's no Red Sox in the, on the field. So we hit in the cages. And as I was walking by, I saw a big old bottle of Jack Daniels, you know, one of the clubhouse manager's offices. And I grabbed it. And so I just kind of, as a joke in it, ran in the clubhouse and did this wholesome symbolic toast. I said, boys, we're not hitting on the field. So we did like a toast, symbolic toast, took batting practice in the cages, and we went out and we won game six. It was Crown Royal. <laughs> it got to the point where we, like, because I'm in Boston and New York, I mean, it's like damn near snowing out there. So that little quick little sip that we took actually benefited us because we were freezing and it warmed you up. Let's put it this way. It was one of those things we did that we didn't want to get out. But with Kevin, that's almost physically impossible. But we just took a little sip, and all of a sudden, I was like, whoa, that felt pretty good. It's not so cold anymore. Now we get moving. 
It wasn't like we were like laying back with a freaking handler in our hand going, hey guys, who needs another one? You know, it's a quick little one hitter and here we go. They almost had to do things differently and it worked. The Sox won game six behind a masterful performance by Kurt Schilling on the mound in his famous Bloody Sock game. They tied the series and now the pressure was squarely on the Yankees heading into game seven. It was in the Bronx, but they had to be feeling it, looking to avoid being the first team ever to blow a 3-0 lead in the postseason. As for the Sox, they were as loose as ever. The thing is that the year before, for game six, everything went down the same way. Game six, afternoon game, four o'clock game, game seven in New York, also eight o'clock game the following day. So in 2003, we played game six. We won at New York. And then game seven was the following day. So after the game six, I was at the hotel by 9, 9.30. And I was so focused. My boys were like, hey, I got a lot of families and friends in New York. Let's go to have a dinner at a restaurant or whatever. You don't play until tomorrow night. And I was like, no, man, I, I, tomorrow we're going to finish this Yankee up. So I, I ain't doing shit. I'm going to get room service and I'm just going to stay. That stressed me out so bad that I can't even sleep. It wasn't me the next day, to be honest with you. And then motherfucking boom, he died homer. The following year, same scenario. Four o'clock game on Fox. We won. We got game seven the following day, 8 p.m. I went, fuck it. I ain't doing what I did last year. Let's go to a restaurant. And then we went to my boy restaurant at Rubio in Queen. And we were having dinner. A couple of Dominican musicians came in that I know. I was drinking wine, having a good time, this and that. Like around 1.30 I'm leaving. But that wine, I was sitting down just drinking wine. That wine got me a little tipsy. So when I was leaving the place, I remember I kind of kicked one of those tables on the way out where it was three Dominican fellas sitting down, Yankee fans. And you know people in Dominican, they know a lot about baseball. And I just hear one of them being like, oh, shit, we got him. There's no way this guy can hit a ball tomorrow. I'm on my way out of the door. And when I hear that, I decided to go back in. My boy, Waskar, who was working security for me, was like, no, no, no. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to say one thing to them. I went back and I told those three guys, I'm going deep on my first bat against Kevin Brown tomorrow. I hope you enjoy yeah, whatever, and I left. Game seven. Top of the first, Ortiz at the plate with one on. Pitch to David. Swing and a drive, hammer deep to right field, way back, and this ball is gone into the right field seats. A line drive home run by David Ortiz, and the Red Sox lead it two to nothing. Ortiz. Ortiz, first pitch he sees, home run. We're up two nothing. That was the most important hit because now we're all able to relax. Johnny Damon added a grand slam, another homer, and six ribbies, and the Sox completed the most improbable comeback in sports history 
with a 10-3 route. I can't tell you, living in New York, there was a pressure that Yankee fans felt. They were having so much fun trashing us that if we won, it was going to be over. So they were nervous. I felt it off my friends. They were nervous. God, we're going to beat you. We're going to beat you. Yankees are never going to lose. But I could hear it in their voices. They were hoping that because all their fun was going to go down the drain if we ever got a team together that could finally beat the Yankees. And, you know, that's where Big Poppy and all those guys came in. Because if you notice, the funniest thing ever was they used to chant 1918, 1918 all the time. They showed on ESPN. I went to a Tampa Bay Devil Rays game, and they chanted 1918. It's like, you guys haven't won anything. You're an expansion franchise. But what was great was when we finally won the series, the, not only beat the Yankees, they were still hanging on like, oh, good, but they haven't, you haven't won the series yet. Yeah, because they wanted that chant because they knew, they knew how much it bugged us. It was so funny the next year when we won it, their chant turned into like, Boston sucks. It was like, it was not only the worst chant ever, it was like a moron chant. They didn't pick a word that had enough syllables, so they had to go like, sucks. They sounded like idiots, and they were acting like babies where they were like, they had these t-shirts, 26 to 6, like, but we got 26, right? And what was so funny was within three years, we won another one. And I was like, what are you going to get now, 26 to 7? And they never made another T-shirt like that. (laughs) Yeah, it was stupid because we're never going to catch them. There's always a team that in the beginning, in the Three Stooges era, you know what I mean, the black and white days when they they only let fucking white guys play. Like, there's always some team that wins, like, fucking 900 championships. It's like the Montreal Canadiens. I mean, they were playing, like, pond hockey when the Stanley Cup was the size of a shot glass, and they still count all of those for whatever reason. I love the rivalry. I didn't hate the players, but it was a grind, you know? It's like one of those, you don't talk to them, but you respected them. You said hello, maybe. It's not that we hated each other, but, you know, it was one of those things. You respected how those guys played, and you respected how they went about their business, and, uh... It was really cool to be part of that. You know, the best rivalry in all sports, in my opinion. I love the Yankees. They put me in the map. <laughs> no, let me tell you, reality, I like the competition. I'm a competitor. And I feel like the Yankees was that one team that reset me. Like, you going through everybody, you get to the Yankees... You got to bring your A game. You got to reset. You go past the Yankee and then because you got reset it, you mentally and physically, you take things to a different level. Now you got guys to continue competing until you reset again with the playing against the Yankees. That's, that's how I feel. The Yankees had two players that while I was competing against them, I don't know if I was competing or being fan of theirs and it was because besides they being the the face of the franchise the way they handle the business their body language the respect that they have for everyone else it was something that impressed me a lot which was Jira and Mariana those two guys I had so much respect for them that I I don't even know how to explain that to you but 
on multiple occasions I have conversation with DJ and this man is just like sometimes I feel like I was talking to a doctor or to an attorney or some shit like that when I was talking to him because he's so short on what he say but he goes straight to the point when he say things and the way he handled the business man and and I had tons of friends that follow his step and their career began to be successful. Robinson Cano. You look at Robinson Cano and you basically are looking at somebody that came from under that umbrella. The Derek Jeter and Mariano Rivera prototype. I remember watching Derek last year. I was already missing him before he retired. Be honest with you. I was asking myself, how this going to be next year not competing against that number two? That's how much respect I, I, I have for him. Same with Mariano. I don't know what the feeling going to be at the end of the game. And let me tell you, I'm the opposition. But that's the experience that I lived through competing against those guys. That's how much respect I have for them. I was so happy for Wake and just the whole cast of characters that were that had to go through getting their basically their freaking soul ripped out the year before. I mean, you got five outs to get to the three-run lead. I don't care who's pitching. You feel like you've got it. I mean, like, it felt to me like I was just watching the game. It just felt like there's no way they're losing this game. There's no way. And I was so, like, distraught that that happened. I was sick. And I had nothing against the Yankees. I just, I was so, like, gutted. And I wasn't even a part of either team. I was just, I couldn't believe having like you're five outs away from going to the World Series and just getting it like just ripped from you and I was very 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 happy for me obviously and happy for the team but happy for those guys who had to go through that the year before and just like they deserve this time because you go from like the lowest of low to bouncing back and then doing it the way we did it the next year you know it wouldn't have meant half as much if we didn't go through the Yankees and then the way we went through them I don't think they lost four games in a row all year. Being able to especially celebrate the AL championship in Yankee Stadium on the field that I had to walk off the year before. The coolest thing about 04, we're celebrating in the Yankee clubhouse, the visiting clubhouse, and one of the clubhouse kids comes up to me because, Mr. Wakefield, you have a phone call. You know, I'm like, who's calling me right now? Like, I have no idea. I thought it might have been an interview for somebody that's calling clubhouse. So I go answer the phone and it's Joe Torrey. And uh, he said, Wake, I just wanted to congratulate you. You're one of the guys that I respect of sitting across this field, competing at you for all these years. I just want to say congratulations and remember to have fun when you're going to the World Series. As for Sox fans, we were in shock. Things working out just the way we dared to hope and dream wasn't something we were used to. Here's comedian Lenny Clark. When we were down three games... To zip to the Yankees. People were just walking around with their heads down. You weren't even looking where you were going. You just said, I hate my life. I hate everything. And then we won a game. We go, yeah. Then we won two. Went, eh, three. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This life, this life, life. And no one talked about it. 
No one talked. We were tied 3 3 going to Yankee Stadium. And no one said shit to each other. Well, the game tonight, yeah. And when we won, the next day, people go, people cut you off and go, it's all right. The Sox won. Go ahead. You know, someone come in front of your line, go right ahead. Do you know the Sox won? We were just so goddamn happy that it was over. One, we finally won. We fought, we're going. We're going to the big game. And secondly, we beat the Yankees. No, at first we beat the Yankees. Second, we're going to the big game. And third, Fuck the curse! The unthinkable had happened. The Red Sox had completed the most improbable playoff comeback in baseball history, and they were headed back to the World Series for the first time since the catastrophe in 1986. It sounds awful, but like the World Series was like boring. Game one was exciting because of the, it was the World Series, but like the actual series was like really anticlimactic after the Yankee series. It felt like a Tuesday night game against the Royals. That's exactly what it felt like. After we did that, it was like, there's no way we're losing. The Sox steamrolled the Cardinals, sweeping them in four games to win the championship and end the so-called curse forever. It had been 86 years since they'd won. Entire generations had come and gone without witnessing a title. But now, all that was over. Big Poppy had carried them to the series, and they closed it out. And the fact that they had gone through the Yankees in such dramatic, cathartic fashion only added to the sweetness of finally winning. I was in New York City. I had my Red Sox hat and my uh, jersey on, and I watched it on a bar on the Upper West Side with a bunch of Boston fans. And they won. I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it, and I was walking down the street, hammered by myself. I believe I was walking down uh, Central Park West or uh, Amsterdam Avenue, and I was just going, "Woo, yeah, baby!" We were screaming, and every New York person knew what I, I mean. I was dressed in all red stuff, but I had people in apartments yelling down, "Shut the fuck up and fuck Boston!" And I was just yelling, World Series champs. I can't believe I didn't get the crap kicked out of him because I was by myself. And it was, it was amazing. There was no Yankee fans anywhere. It was just this bar crawl of Boston transplants. And we were just walking around with this stupid, like, dopamine look on our faces and just randomly hugging people. Like, it's over. It's fucking over. That's all I remember. And I just remember, all I ever wanted was just them to win it once. I was happy with that. Sports in this market is very close to the heart of everybody. And it's something you pass on to your child. They pass on to theirs. You pass on to your grandchild. Lou Marloni knows that as well as anyone. Having grown up in Boston, played for the Sox, and now hosted a sports talk radio show there on WEEI. So in a way, sports brings people together around here like I've never seen in, in any other city and I'm sure it is just haven't you know I just haven't seen it I'm sure it is in Philly in New York and in, in, in these types of passionate cities but here in Boston it's really about family and sharing moments and I think what he did was he brought I don't know how four three generations together you saw grandparents and fathers and sons celebrating together giving them a moment that I think a lot of people felt like they were never gonna get the joy that that team brought to this city, and he had a huge part of it. Former longtime Red Sox TV voice, Don Orsillo. 
Oh, it was incredible. Uh, it was a day that I'll never forget. I mean, the weather was not fantastic, but nobody really cared. It was uh, an amazing scene to see uh, millions uh, come down to the parade route and it to continue in the duck boats onto the water in the Charles, uh, seeing the fans on the, the banks of the Charles, seeing the faces and the expressions of those people. Really, it was not just for that crew of Red Sox, the 25-man roster. It was for players before them that had gone through so many different things. I heard from uh, so many of the players on the 04 team. You know, this is for the Johnny Peskies. This is for the guys that came before us, uh, the Jim Rices, uh, the Dwight Evans, uh, Carlton Fisk, and others who had been through Boston and never had the chance to uh, hoist the championship trophy. Um, that, that was really for them and for the fans of Boston and all the, the generations that had come and gone who went through so much dismay and broken hearts throughout the years and uh, it was really for uh, more than just the team itself it was a uh, <laughs> I guess I would call it a movement of some sort I mean it was something that really changed the city of Boston changed Red Sox nation and finally they were able to call themselves world champions Doug Mankiewicz was on the duck boat with his buddy the fearless hero Big Poppy. David hates the water like, and we went in the water, and David's in the back with a life jacket on. It looked like an extra small wrapped around his neck because it was, he was so big. I'm like, David, that's not going to work, bud. Like, you're not going to stay afloat with that. He's like, that's why you're on the floor with me, Doug, because uh, you'll help me swim. I'm like, I ain't helping your big ass swim. Like, you're going to drown me. It's freezing. But, like, here we are in the water. I go, David, I promise you this, bud. If you fall in, there'll be 1.7 million people swimming out here to make sure you're okay. So you're in good hands, buddy. Like, you're going to be fine. Winning a championship for first time here in Boston was something that I never thought it means that much to a city until I got cut in, in the moment. Like you hear the Yankee and Red Sox thing going back and forth, this and that, blah, 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 you know. But I didn't grow up into that. So it doesn't matter how much you, you hear about it. It's not like you know that much about it. But once we won it, and then I start seeing how the city was functioning, how things were going down, how people feel about it, that was when it really hit home. The year before, when we lost, it was like going back to normal because it happened before. But winning on 04, it was like, okay, let me show you why we were missing this so much. Break a curse? Check. Become a hero? Check. What was left for Big Poppy to do? I feel like somebody was missing with us. Somebody was missing with what we work for every day. Somebody was missing with the freedom that we have fight for. Somebody was trying to put fear on us. Be sure to download and listen to the fourth and final episode of David Ortiz, the Big Poppy Story, to find out. Thanks for listening.